0: Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com.
1: Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail these preparations having thus been made the priests go go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I hope that uh, most of you are well, right? Yeah, ish. Uh, As Paul said, I am a little under the weather, so I will... uh, I'll keep my sniffles to a minimum as as best as I possibly can. Uh, I can't make the same promise for the coughs. They kind of like to just sneak attack me. I don't ever really know when a cough is coming, so so don't worry if I cough. I'll try not to do it right into the microphone and blow out your eardrums. Um, But uh, anyway, I hope you're feeling well. And if not, be in prayer uh, for yourself and for the people who aren't feeling well. Now... One thing that you may notice if you have been to a few different churches is that you will find a variety in the type of worship styles right? Is that something that you've experienced before going to a bunch of different churches, seeing a bunch of different types of ways that that people actually go about doing a worship service? Some have more uh, contemporary music like our own while others sing out of a hymnal. Some uh, include more kind of liturgical elements to their worship services while others don't really add that much to it. Some partake in the Lord's Supper every single week, while others do it monthly or or quarterly. We're actually bad Baptists because we do it every week. The the typical Baptist thing to do is do it every quarter, I think. Um, But the point is, worship in the church can take a variety of forms. But if you are in the New Covenant in Christ, there are certain elements that that always remain the same, that, that don't change. And the most important of which we are told by Jesus in John 4, verse 24. When He says, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in what? Spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Essentially what this means is that no matter where you are, no matter what style of worship the church you belong to decides to do, as long as it is biblical... What truly matters is that you are worshiping God in spirit, in your spirit, in a way that concords with the truth of Scripture. That's that's what really matters. And this is why coming to church, friends, and this is going to step on some toes because it steps on my own toes, but this is why coming to church and standing in, in your spot and somewhat, mindlessly singing the words that appear on the screen, does not constitute as worship. Do you know that? does not constitute as worship. Simply engaging in the outward actions without inward engagement of the heart is not worship. In fact, it is more akin to hypocrisy. And this is why you have heard us say many times, that when you are singing these songs, like we just sang this morning, what you really need to do is think of them as prayers that you are offering up to God. Because that's really what they are. And this is actually why leaving a church, simply because you don't like the style of music, is, is very unbiblical. It is not wrong to prefer one style of music over another, but if your sole reason for leaving a church is because you don't like the style of music. Now, I've heard people do that time and time again. Rather than something actually being unbiblical about the church, is to make the grave error in thinking that the music, that the worship service, is about you. But when you are worshiping God in spirit and truth, and you apply that to Sunday mornings, does it then matter if you like the tempo or if you like the cadence or the rhythm of the song that you're singing? Or is what actually matters the truthfulness of the words and your heart's desire to magnify God? Now worship in the New Covenant, as we will revisit a bit later, also, of course, can happen not only within the confines of the church, But wherever a believer happens to be, and you can use other means than just music, Bible reading, prayer, listening with intentionality to a sermon, even even our work, really everything that we do, if done for God in spirit and in truth, that's that's worship, friends. That's worship. We should seek to view our lives as one unending worship service. Should we not? And there's a beautiful closeness that we enjoy with Him when we do that. This is the meaning of Paul in Romans 12 telling us to live our lives as living sacrifices. Now we in the New Covenant can often take our ability to worship God in this way for granted. But I want you to remember yet again the focus of Hebrews. It was written to keep those Jewish believers from going back to the now obsolete Old Covenant. And so the author has told us again and again that we have Jesus. We we have Him. We have the great High Priest who inaugurated the New Covenant that brings with it all of these incredible benefits. I think to truly appreciate all of that, and to appreciate how we now worship God in the New Covenant, I think we must, and I think this is what the, what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across, we must attempt a mental exercise of, of rewinding the tape a little bit and putting ourselves back in the Old Covenant worship system and what it was like to be a partaker in it. And again, this is precisely what the author of Hebrews helps us do in our passage this morning. Now, worship in the Old Covenant was established by God, and therefore it was good, right? It was good. However, we must understand that worship in the Old Covenant was also limited, very limited. And the author wants to put clearly in our minds the limitations of the Old Covenant worship so that we can clearly see how Jesus came and shattered them. How He came and shattered those limitations, allowing us to worship Him in a way that had yet to be known. And so this morning, we we get the grand privilege of actually unpacking the old covenant worship system so that we can now see the glories, or so that we can see more clearly the glories of the New Testament that was made, or the new covenant worship system that was made possible by Christ. But before we go further, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we can come together to worship you. Lord, as we are about to see, there were so many barriers to your presence, so many limitations to the Old Covenant people's ability to worship You, that we simply don't have to deal with it. And so, Lord, I pray that You impress that grand privilege upon our minds this morning. Help our hearts be engaged as we look at what Your Word has to say. And I pray this in Your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. Now I'm stealing this uh, illustration from a uh, wonderful theologian by the name of Michael Kruger. And it's a very deep illustration, too, by the way. Have any of you seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah? Have you seen it? And the premise of that movie, just in case you haven't seen it, <clears throat> is a bit fantastical, of course. It imagines the Nazis have found the long lost Ark of the Covenant and they believe that they can actually harness the power within it to dominate the world, and it's up to the archaeologist archeolo- Indiana Jones to put a stop to it, right? It sounds, it sounds silly because it is silly, but it's great. <laughs> now, there's a massive amount of things that this movie just gets completely wrong. I mean, it's a, it's a movie. It's not really trying to be biblically accurate by any stretch of the imagination. But shockingly, there is actually one thing which the movie does get right. And that is that God is holier than you can possibly imagine. At the end of the movie, Jones is all tied up with, uh, with his girlfriend at the time. And the Nazis have possession of the Ark. And then do you remember what happens? They open it. And a a very wild scene ensues. And let's just say it does not end well for the Nazis. Now, whether they intended this to be the message or not, the movie portrayed the God of the Covenant as being a God that you cannot cozy up to. Right? Is that the image that you get when they finally get the the lid open? Not at all. Not at all. He is far too holy. He is far too unapproachable. And if you try, then what happened to the Nazis when they opened the lid will, will happen to you too. And do you remember what they did at the very end, right before the, the credits rolled? You know, they take the Ark and they, they stick it in a crate and they lock it away in some warehouse and they try to kind of forget that whole incident ever happened, right? And the sad thing is, is that's actually where the movie just sort of, sort of leaves it, right? There's no, there's no solution it's just, it's just take this holy God, put them in a box, and just get rid of them, right? Their solution to not being able to draw near to God is just, just don't draw near. Just don't do it. And now, believe it or not, <clears throat> this is actually somewhat of a good illustration of the experience of the Old Covenant worshiper. Old Covenant worship was, was good and ordained by God, but it was done at a far distance. In fact, there was one major theme of Old Covenant worship, and that was, you cannot draw near to God. And because of that, Old Covenant worship was severely limited. There was was no cozying up to God. There was no running to Him unimpeded. There was no coming into His full presence to worship Him, because to do so meant death. It meant death. Now, in a sense, you, you, you could have a relationship with God, but it was one that was just a shadow of what it would be in Christ. Now, the Old Covenant worship was so limited because it was very earthly. It was very earthly. This is one of the things that the author of Hebrews is trying to be, has been trying to convey to us over the last several chapters. It was done in an earthly place, it was mediated by earthly priests who gave earthly sacrifices. And because of all this, full access to God was denied. You could not worship without a host of restrictions. And we have to remember that as we think of Old Covenant worship, it was vastly, vastly different than how we worship now. Now we're going to be spending time looking at each of these. The earthly place, the earthly priest, the earthly sacrifices, and how worship was done in all of these different senses. But we're going to be spending most of our time this morning on the first one, being done in an earthly place. And so I want us to, right now, actually jump into that first point, the limitations of the earthly place of worship. Now a couple of weeks ago we spoke on chapter, uh, chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 and we saw how God after He had delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt <clears throat> God gave Moses a, a set of instructions. He gave him a blueprint of how to build what was called a tabernacle. And this tabernacle was was like a big tent that could be packed up and moved around as the Israelites did their wandering in the wilderness. And this tent had a very holy function. It was to be the dwelling place of God and where worship of Him would take place. Now eventually, King David's son Solomon would replace the tabernacle with the permanent structure of the temple, but the the basic layout between the two were essentially the exact same. But unlike chapter 8, here in chapter 9, we're actually able or given the privilege of of peeking inside the tabernacle. And so if you will, open up your Bibles to Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> it says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. But behind the second, <coughs> excuse me, behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Now, I want you to quickly take a look at the screens. I think on them we have a a picture of... uh, of what the tabernacle actually looked like. Right there. There it is. Beautiful. I drew that myself. Actually. That's a lie. I did not. <clears throat> but this is an image of the tabernacle. And that <coughs> excuse me. That outer wall that you see that goes around the tent, it actually separated the tabernacle with the rest of the Israel. And only when one had gone through the, the proper, oh thank you so much, the, uh, the proper cleansing ritual, rituals could they actually enter into that courtyard that you see right there, where they would bring their sacrifices, which was an essential uh, key part of the old covenant worship. But we're actually going to be giving most of our attention to the actual structure itself, that, that big tent in the middle, which is the tabernacle. Now, as you're reading verses 1 through 5 of our passage, one thing that the author makes very clear is that within that tabernacle are two chambers, right? There are two chambers within the tabernacle. The first one of which is called the Holy Place, which held significant items that we're going to be looking at soon. And the second is called the Most Holy Place, or you may have also heard it called the Holy of Holies, where God's presence resided. Now, the entirety of this structure was meant to convey to the people of Israel that access to the presence of God was simply off-limits. It was off-limits. The outer courtyard was as, as really as close as the, the typical Israeli was able to get to God. Entry into the tabernacle was strictly forbidden to the average Israelite. To enter into the holy place was only granted to the priest, and then entering into the holy of holies, the most holy place, was only given to a singular high priest. Now anyone who was somewhat reflective during this time would have felt a relationship with God was something like a relationship with a distant relative. You know, the connection was there. It was there. But it was was, was far off. It was real, but just somewhat intangible. There were these barriers in the way. They couldn't go into the holy place, and they, they certainly couldn't go into the holy of holies. And so the general sense was, you did not have access to the presence of God. You were greatly limited in your ability to approach Him, and so you had to worship Him at arm's length. And so even in the very construction of the earthly tabernacle, we are shown the limitations of the Old Covenant worship. But in verses 1 through 5, the author also wants to draw our attention to what lies within the tabernacle. And he begins with what is in the first chamber, the holy place. And in verse 2, we are told there are two things inside now, just real quick, if you're actually looking back to the Old Testament at the instructions that God gave Moses in Exodus 25 through 31, you will actually find that there are three things found within the holy place. The first was the lampstand, <clears throat> also called the menorah, which had seven branches, three on each side of the main stem. And the priests were commanded to not allow that lampstand. <clears throat> to ever burn out. They had to constantly replenish the supply of oil and to constantly be, be cutting the wicks. Now, the second thing within the first chamber was the table with the bread of presents placed upon it, which were 12 loaves that were baked fresh every single week. And when the priest would come in and replace the old loaves with the new, the priest would actually eat the old loaves. <clears throat> And the third and last item within the holy place was the golden altar of incense, which, again, the priests were also required to keep constantly burning. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to take a sip of this water. <clears throat> Now most scholars believe that it is most likely due to the fact that the altar of incense played a vital role in the entry of the holy place, or the high priest rather, into the holy of holies. That is why they accredited it to the holy of holies. And in order to enter, the high priest had to pass through this cloud of incense which represented the prayers of the people of Israel being lifted up to God. And so it is as if the high priest was was being covered in prayers of the people as he entered into the most holy place. And he would also uh, have to take some of the incense into the Holy of Holies to allow the smoke to fall onto the ark. And again, this is why most believe the author here is attributing the altar to the second chamber rather than the first because of the vital role that it actually played when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. Now we have been saying over the last several weeks that everything within the Old Covenant is meant to reflect Christ, right? And so I just kind of want to just briefly take a look at how each of these items in the Holy Place actually accomplished that task. So first, I want us to take a quick look at the lampstand, which represented God's revelation of Himself and His illuminating presence. Now, remember, this particular lampstand had seven branches. It was meant to be constantly burning, constantly producing this brilliant light. Now, <clears throat> as many of you probably know, numbers within the Scriptures are often important, are often very important, and if looked at and understood correctly, they can can carry with them a lot of significance. Now the problem is, is that sometimes we look at them incorrectly and a lot of conspiracy theories like to kind of be formed around those numbers. But if we look at them correctly, there's a lot to be gleaned here. And the easiest number to understand the significance of is the number seven. Right? It's the number seven, which represented wholeness and perfection. Wholeness and perfection. And so what this lampstand anticipated was a perfect and unending light. A perfect and unending light. What it anticipated was the light of the world who was coming. Who was going to be the most perfect, the most complete revelation of God to humankind in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Friends, the brilliant light of God, meaning the revelation of His character, His nature, and His saving purpose came came shining into the pages of history like the blazing sun. Listen to John 1, verses 4 through 5, and then verse 9. It says, In Him was life. And what was that life? It was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And in that very same chapter, we are even told that Jesus, the Word of God, came to dwell among us. And what is that word, friends, that, that word dwell? What can that also be translated as? Tabernacle. Tabernacle. Jesus came to tabernacle, to dwell among us. There's no doubt that the first century Jewish readers of the Gospel of John had in their minds that lampstand, finally understanding what it was all pointing to. Now, let's look at the bread of presence. <clears throat> As I mentioned, the bread of presence was made of twelve loaves that sat atop a table lined with gold. Now, these twelve loaves were meant to represent God's sustaining power of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, the use of bread is actually very significant in illustrating God's sustaining provision. And today, bread can actually be often an afterthought when it comes to our meals. Not for me, because I love bread a lot. But it's it's not unusual necessarily for for us in the modern West to have meals that just kind of lack bread altogether. But in ancient times, it was the bread that made up one of, if not the main element of every single meal, of every single one. In the ancient world, bread was equivalent to life. And there's no doubt, this is why in John 6, after the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, He tells the crowd that He is, what? The bread of life. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Friends, in Jesus is true sustenance. True sustenance. But not just sustenance that can fill our physical hunger. But He is the bread of heaven that fills every spiritual hunger that we have. And and friends, if if you don't think of yourselves as as being spiritually hungry, man, friends, guess, guess again. Because there is a hunger that exists inside all of us. A hunger for, for a, a sense of belonging. A, a hunger for a, a, a sense of being loved with an infinite love. A, a hunger for a sense of divine purpose in the world. To, to have a deep and abiding sense of relationship that contains no fear and no distrust. A deep sense of needing to be free from a guilty conscience. All of those things are spiritual hunger. And we try to fill that spiritual hunger with all sorts of earthly things and distractions, but in doing so, we just leave ourselves more hungry. And friends, we can, we can often do that even as Christians. But Jesus, Jesus is the bread of life who can uniquely satisfy your spiritual hunger and quench your thirsty hearts. And when you feast on the bread of life through faith in Christ, friends, you find abundant life that is sustained, not not just until the next hard thing happens in your life, but throughout eternity. Lastly, we have the altar of incense. That was to represent the unending prayer of God's people. Well, friends, as many commentators point out, and as we have mentioned in several sermons in this series already, the fulfillment of this altar of incense is found in the wonderful reality that believers now, Christians now, not only have brothers and sisters who pray for us, but we have Christ Jesus Himself. We have the second person of the Godhead, Himself, covering us in never-ceasing prayer. I never get over that truth. And so how amazing is it that even here, within the first chamber of the tabernacle, we are given images and symbols of what Christ would do and who He would be. That's amazing. So that was a look into the first chamber, the holy place. Now let's look inside the second chamber, the Holy of Holies. If you would, read again with me verses 3-5. through <coughs> Excuse me. It says behind the curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. <coughs> And so as I mentioned before, it was in this second chamber, the most holy place, that God's presence rested, symbolized it by the Ark of the Covenant. Now, before we can even look inside of this last chamber, we must first take notice of the curtain that was placed between the two chambers. And this curtain was massive. It was massive. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet across, and about 4 inches thick. And the message being sent by this curtain yet again was clear. It was clear. Access to God in His presence was blocked. There's a separation between the holy God and the sinful people. Even the priests that were working in the holy place. Now as we said, beyond the curtain in the most holy place, the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And within the ark were, were three things. There, were, there was the golden urn that held some leftover manna from their time in the wilderness. There was Aaron's own personal staff that, that budded. And then lastly, there were the tablets of the covenant. And this was kind of a, essentially a small history placed within this ark. It was like as if God was making kind of like a, a memory box of Israel. But the primary essence of the ark was actually not what was inside of it, though those things were very important. But as we spoke of before in previous sermons, it was actually what was on top of it, the mercy seat, which again was basically its lid. And built on either side of the mercy seat were two cherubim, these angelic beings with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat, meeting in the middle. And the mercy seat is important because it represented the very throne of God. And it is there where the manifestation of God's presence in Israel was located. It was on the mercy seat. Now remember a couple of weeks back, we read in chapter 8 that the tabernacle was created to represent a heavenly reality. Right? A heavenly reality. There is a heavenly throne room that is far more holy than the outer courtyard of the tabernacle and later temple more holy than even the holy place, and more holy still than the holy of holies. And friends, there is a throne, there is a mercy seat that is far more splendid than the one that was found on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And, there, <clears throat> and it is there that, that not just a manifestation of God's presence resides, but the, the fullness of God's presence resides. And those golden cherubim represented real creatures. Do you realize that? When you see all those pictures of the Ark of the Covenant and you see those, those angelic beings on, on the top of it, those are, they're not just there for show. Those are real creatures or real representations of real creatures that fly around God's throne. But who, we are told, must cover their faces before the holy Yahweh. We actually get a glimpse of what that heavenly place is like, in in places like Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, where Isaiah and Ezekiel and John on separate occasions are are given visions, are brought into God's presence in His heavenly throne room. And friends, you've got to realize this. When they went in there, they they were not joyful. But what were they? They were terrified. They were terrified. They didn't stroll around casually. They didn't greet God like an old friend. But what did they do? They prostrated themselves. They most likely wished the earth would just open up to swallow them so that they could just escape the presence of the perfectly holy God. In fact, the cry of Isaiah when he was standing in God's presence was, Woe is me! He pronounced a curse on himself. And he said that I am undone. I am unmade simply by standing in the presence of the thrice holy God. And so I want want you to keep that clearly in your mind because even going into the earthly representation of God's presence inside the holy of holies of the tabernacle was a treacherous act. Even stepping one toe into the earthly manifestation of God's presence, not even the fullness of His presence, if done improperly, if done without following all the rules and all the regulations, wasn't met with with warmth and comfort. It was met with death. Now real quickly, Another limitation brought on by the earthly place of worship is the fact that to worship correctly and fully in the Old Covenant meant that you must go to the tabernacle. That you must, of course, later go to the temple to offer sacrifices for your sins. And this is why Jews from all over (coughs) would one day a year, the Day of Atonement, would make their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. So complete worship was tied to a geographical location. And so friends, I, I, I hope you see at this point all of the limitations of the Old Covenant worship that are being illustrated by this earthly location, by the tabernacle and by the temple. Do you see it? Because even if you made it to Jerusalem, friends, you would be hit with restriction after restriction in your worship there. In order to even approach the temple mount where the temple was built, you were required to have a certain level of ceremonial cleanliness. To enter into the court of the Gentiles, another level of cleanliness was required. To enter into the court of the Israelites, yet another level of cleanliness had to be reached. And even then, you were barred entry into the holy place. And you would never step foot into the holy of holies. And so the main point of the earthly place of worship, of the tabernacle, of the temple, was all to illustrate that access to God, even in a limited sense, was restricted. Andrew Murray put it well when he wrote, "...the tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths." God called man to come and worship and serve him, and yet he might not come too near. The veil, the curtain, kept him at a distance." Love calls the sinner near. A lack of holiness keeps him back. The Holy One bids Israel build him a house in which he will dwell, but forbids them from entering his presence there. Now the last two earthly limitations of the Old Covenant worship system really go hand in hand. and We're going to sort of fly through these, so, so hang on. They're going to be covered a little bit more next week, I'm sure. But they go hand in hand because as the Jewish people were met with barrier after barrier, after they were faced with restriction after restriction that kept them from coming into God's presence, it really makes you wonder if they ever became frustrated, right? If they they ever became frustrated with the ineffectiveness of the Old Covenant earthly priesthood and the earthly sacrifices They offered. Did you ever think about that? Do you think they ever ever in their minds thought that there's got to be something more? There's got to be something better than what we are experiencing right now? I mean, yes, they did the important tasks. And and yes, the earthly sacrifice were were able to give them temporary forgiveness of sin. but, But even after all of that, even after they did all of that, they could still not get the people behind that veil, behind that curtain. And this is really the point the author is making in the next several verses. Take a look at verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. And this is speaking of the ordinary priests whose job it was to tend day in and day out to the various tasks in the holy place, such as keeping the lampstand burning and all of that. Now take a look at verse 7. It says, But into the second, meaning the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, what I want you to really see here is that even now, even now, you have God's number one guy, right? His number one guy. You have the high priest, and God is essentially saying to him, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to have a relationship with you and through you with the rest of Israel, with the rest of my people, but I'm going to even restrict that. I'm going to restrict that too. And I'm only going to allow you into my presence, which isn't even my full presence, only once a year. Only once a year. And now, even even when the high priest does go in on that one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, he must do so very carefully. His role was to bring in the blood offering to sprinkle on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. But as we mentioned, the other weakness, as as it's mentioned here again, he also had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. There were also other washings and, and special instructions the high priest had to follow on the Day of Atonement before he was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And so as we said a moment ago, one wrong move. One toe out of the line, one rule not followed by the high priest meant his end. Right? It meant his end. And this is why we're, we're, we're told by tradition, it's not confirmed in scripture or anything like that, but we're told that the high priest would often tie a rope around his ankle because it was that dangerous, because he might just drop dead. So they just had to yank him out. And so even God's number one guy in all of Israel had to enter with trepidation. Now, I don't know if you thought about this, but this kind of really struck me this week as I was studying for this sermon. But even after he completed all of those rituals, after he offered the sacrifice for the people and for himself, friends, was he allowed to stay in the Holy of Holies? Was he invited to just hang around in the presence of God because after all, all the, all the sins of the past year had been forgiven? No. Not at all. Not at all. As soon as he finished, he had to leave immediately. And why is that? Skip ahead. <clears throat> Skipping ahead a verse. We read in verse 9. It says, according to this arrangement, meaning the old covenant sacrificial system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10 continues and says, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, until the time of the new covenant. What verse 10 is saying is that the earthly sacrifices given by the earthly high priest could only achieve forgiveness for the breaking of the various laws given in the Old Covenant. If you missed a washing or broke the dietary laws or broke from the Ten Commandments in a variety of ways, broke the various laws that had to do with the body, those things could be forgiven through the sacrifice of the goat offered by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. All of which were in effect until the Day of the New Covenant. I was ratified by Christ. But the limitation was that the sacrifice of the goat could not cleanse the conscience of the one who has come to worship God. And the reason is because their hearts, the worshippers' hearts as a whole, were not able to be fully cleansed. Could not be fully washed clean of the stain of sin by the blood of an earthly sacrifice. It just wasn't good enough. The Israelites could sacrifice animals day after day, and friends, they did, without having their consciences truly cleansed. Without having peace about drawing near to God in His holiness. Until that happened, there could never be the fellowship between God and His people that the Lord actually desired. Now, the climax of verses 1 through 10 here in chapter 9 is actually found in verse 8. In verse 8, where we are told the Holy Spirit is teaching a lesson through the entirety of the old covenant worship system. Take a look at it. It says, By this, meaning all we have spoken of so far, the tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices... By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. And let's add this first sentence of verse 9 as well, which says, is symbolic for this present age. Many biblical scholars agree that the better translation of this is, which is symbolic for the age then present the age of the Old Covenant. And so this means that even in the age of the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was at work. Isn't that amazing? When we think of the Holy Spirit, we often only think of His work in the New Covenant. We often only think of His work at Pentecost or in our hearts now. But even in the age of the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was at work. He was using the Old Covenant worship system with its earthly tabernacle, its earthly temple, priests, and and sacrifices to teach the lesson that we have been speaking of throughout this sermon. That God, or access to God, in His full, unfettered presence had not yet, not yet been opened You could not get there. You could not worship there. As long as the Old Covenant and all of its trappings still stood, barriers would still exist between God and His people. And so even then, the Holy Spirit was creating a longing in God's people. He's creating a longing in their hearts that was like the psalmist in Psalm 84, 1-2 when he says, I long to be in your dwelling place. My heart yearns for it. And I'm, so, I'm sure these people, they, they longed for more of God, for a deeper relationship with Him, to no longer have to worship Him from a distance, to come close, A longing for the one who would be a better high priest. Who would offer a better sacrifice in a holier place that would allow the worshiper to stand in his full presence without being unmade. So all of it was being used by God the Holy Spirit ultimately to make them long for Jesus. friends, by the incredible grace of God, He didn't withhold Himself from us. Jesus, friends, He did come. He did come. And when He did, He broke down every barrier and removed every limitation between God and His people. And He ushered in a beautiful new era of worship. How wonderful is that? And so friends, do you, do you know when the, massive, or when, the, when the moment was that, that signaled the, the massive monumental shift in worship? Do you know when that was? And you can, you can make the argument that it was at the very moment of the incarnation when, when Christ came into the world. Maybe you could even say that it was during Jesus' three-year ministry. You can make an argument for that. But I believe that the true moment that changed it all was when He hung on the cross and His blood was pouring out of countless wounds. He breathed His last. Because at that moment, friends, so many things happened all at once in the blink of an eye. The new covenant made in the blood of Christ was established and the old began to pass away. The wrath of God that was being poured out onto Jesus for the sake of the sins of all those who had placed their faith in Him was finally satisfied. The perfect blood of the sacrifice given by the high priest in His own body was accepted, granting full forgiveness of all sins, all of them, and the complete washing and perfecting of the consciences of all who would be His people. All that happened within the blink of an eye. But do you know what else happened, brothers and sisters? What I'm about to read carries so much more significance after spending time on what we just did today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew Chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. It's worth the time to flip there. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 51. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died on the cross. And behold, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How amazing! I'm sorry? Four inches, four inches thick. Friends, after everything that we saw this morning, do you understand the absolute beauty of that just one verse? Do you feel it in your hearts? I hope that you do. Christ in His sacrificial death on the cross, in His giving of Himself for the sake of His beloved, for for you and me, He completely and utterly tore down the barriers which said you could not come near. He took away the limitations that held us back from worshiping freely in His presence. And now we can. We can run into His holy presence like children running to their loving Father, knowing knowing that He will not strike us down, but that He will eagerly receive us. All this can really be summed up by two verses contrasted side by side. The first one is Leviticus 16.2 and the next one is Hebrews 4.16. In the passage in Leviticus, God is speaking to Moses about his, heir, his brother Aaron who was the very first high priest. And God says this. He says, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. He could not just come prancing in there whenever he wanted before the throne of God, in the, in the presence of God, because that meant death for Aaron. But friends, look at the incredible contrast of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. What does that say? It says, let us, we who are believers, we Christians who are in the new covenant, let us then with confidence draw near where? To the throne of grace. To the throne of grace. So that we may receive what? Mercy. Mercy, And find grace to help in time of need. Wow. Wow. We who are in Christ, who are in the new covenant, made in His blood, are told that we can freely, whenever, wherever, draw near to the very throne of God. And not, not with trepidation, not, not with a fear in our hearts, but with confidence, with boldness, and with comfort. Because all the sin that held you back was completely dealt with in Christ. And so we now live in the time that Jesus prophesied in John 4, 21 where His people will not worship Jesus on the mountain or or in Jerusalem in the temple. But we worship Him in spirit and in truth because He not only resides in heaven, but as 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, He is in our very hearts. How incredible is that? The veil was torn in the earthly temple and we have now become true temples of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God now resides in each of you, believer. And so, friends, let us not take all of this for granted. The message of the old covenant worship system was that you can't draw near. But the message of the new covenant, the message of, of Christ Jesus is come near to me and nearer still. John Wesley, in his hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, says it beautifully, and I think we have it on the screen. It says, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Please pray. Lord, I am just overwhelmed. Lord, my wickedness, my sinful heart, made it to where I rightfully could not come into Your presence. You are far too holy, far too perfect, but God, you didn't leave it there. You didn't leave me where I was. But Father, you sent your Son to die for me so that I could finally draw near. So that my sins may be pardoned. That my conscience can be wiped clean because all of my guilt is no longer on my shoulders, but it was on the shoulders of your Son. Those sins, Lord, were nailed to the cross. And you remember them no more. And we all, God, who have been washed clean by your blood, can now stand in your presence with joy and confidence, knowing that we can worship you with no barriers between us. And we get to do so for eternity. So, Lord, we thank you. Help us Lord, help us to not take all of this for granted. I pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.